chapter 5, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so glad that I don't have to come up with some clever self-help advice every Sunday. I'll work up something that I think is, is smart. So glad that I can come up here every Sunday and just open up your word and say and try to explain what you've already said. Lord, I remember this time that I was so busy one particular day that I went through the entire day without eating a single meal. So caught up in what I was doing that I didn't realize I had skipped several meals. It wasn't until the aroma of the kitchen that night wafing my way that I began to realize my hunger pains. God, I pray that this morning as we open up your word and as we sit before our Messiah, that deep hunger pains would rise to the surface of our hearts as the aroma of Christ is put on display. Holy Spirit, please put Jesus Christ on display today. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I don't know if you've been noticing up until this point, this feeling in the Beatitudes that Jesus has been giving us that is very lowly in nature. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that is spiritually bankrupt, economically bankrupt, have nothing. Blessed are those who mourn over the sense that they have nothing. And blessed are those who are humbled by it, they're meek. There has been up until this point this empty, broken, low sense to this group of people that Jesus is speaking about, the heavens breaking out over them. Up until this point, it has been sheer brokenness, sheer emptiness, sheer misery even. But in verse 6, things start to pick up speed. But before we can understand anything that Jesus says, it seems that the following verse is predicated on this assumption that something is missing from the heart of a human being. 
that there is, no matter what we accumulate around us, something missing in the human condition. As Jesus points, the appetites of our hunger and thirst towards a single word we would have to say, we better understand before we go any farther what it is that righteousness is before we move on. If you were to look up righteousness in a dictionary, you would come up with something of this nature. It's righteousness is of a person having to do with their conduct, how they act, how they behave, that is morally right or justifiable or virtuous. And this is probably the word that a lot of us attach when we think of righteousness, is virtue, the sense of moral excellence, the sense of goodness, the sense of right behavior and right conduct. Although we would rather, probably in most cases, use virtue because for many of us, righteousness is virtue with all that extra Christian baggage that makes us feel judged and condemned. Righteousness is often associated with virtue. It's excellence in behavior. It's excellence in lifestyle. Except that there is one thing missing. Righteousness is not virtue. The difference between righteousness and virtue is that righteousness, to put it in the words of Dallas Willard, retains a note of emphasis upon the relationship of the soul to God. So the main difference is what flows out of our life in behavior and in action and in thought and in deed based on how our souls are related to the God we love and worship, righteousness. Of course, we should form our biggest definition from Scripture and not the dictionary. If you were to look up every occasion of righteousness in the Old Testament and in the New and put them together, you would run into three different types. Righteousness shows up thousands of times. It is so rich and robust in meaning that if you read righteousness in a verse in any part of the Bible, you are, more li uh, you are likely reading at least one of three different definitions. One is a legal sense. It's how God sees us. This is what was spoken of in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 through 6, when God blesses Abraham and says, uh, it says he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars, and if you are able to count them. And God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And then Abraham believed in the Lord, and here's the word, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. You find that very odd? and alluring at the same time, because if you keep reading about Abraham's life, he makes some mistakes. He falls short. He does some embarrassing things. He causes a black eye to fall on the people of God on occasion, and yet God, before that ever happens, knowing that those things would happen, declares Abraham to be righteous by faith. That is the legal sense of righteousness. It's how God sees us. It has nothing to do with what we do. We're just reckoned as right, uh, uh, as right standing with God by faith. But then there's some other senses. There's the moral sense of righteousness. 
If the legal sense is how God sees us, the moral sense is how we act towards God. This is what you might have in mind when you think of righteousness. It's how I act, it's how I behave, it's how my life looks, it's my deeds. This we can capture in Isaiah 48, verse 18, when God says to the people of Israel, oh, that you paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. There's that correlation, righteousness with right living. But then there's also a social dynamic to righteousness. It doesn't just stop with how God sees us or how we act towards God, but then how we treat one another. There's a social component, how we act towards others. And this is seen in social structures. It's seen in family. It's seen in how we treat the least in society, the least of these. It's how we build structures in which we are engaged in one another. It's the workplace. It's the family. It's the marriage. It's the friendships. It's the church. Social component. And when we don't love other people more than ourselves, or at least as much as ourselves, we show a lack of righteousness. This is where we get warnings in places like the book of Ezekiel to the children of God. Ezekiel 45, 9, thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Or in the book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, take away from me the noise of your songs Take away the melody of your harps. I will not listen to them, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He's essentially telling the people of Israel, I don't want to listen to your worship teams or your singing or your clapping or your music until you act like the very things you profess to believe. It's kind of like what he's saying. So this dynamic word, righteousness, encapsulates all these things. How does God see us? How do we act towards God? And how does that flow into our relationships with everybody around us? And every verse in scripture that comes up with this word righteousness, whether old or new, has to do with one of these. But when the kingdom of God comes in its full form, it will encapsulate all of these three. The people of God will be perfectly seen by God because they're seen in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we'll also act perfectly towards God in love and in worship, in obedience, but then we'll also be in perfect harmony and love towards one another. The kingdom of God come. So when we're reading through Matthew chapter five, the context is those last two. It's not so much the legal aspect, how God views us, it is the social and moral components. You have to put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish uh, disciples that were listening to Jesus and their struggles at that time. Roman occupation, taxed without representation, oppressed by the aristocracy in their own nation, looked over, passed by, by the people who should have been helping them and the cry of their hearts, God, will you show your righteousness? What were they saying? Will you make broken things right again? Will you remove the blemishes and will you cause the distortions to be straightened? 
Will you cause the, the crooked lines to be made straight? Will you cause that which has been distorted to be clear? Will you uh, heal broken systems and heal wounds and reconcile broken relationships? Will you do that, Lord? That was a cry of Matthew, especially in chapter five. It is that same thing that you and I, even in the back of our minds, settle a cry on a regular basis. This sense inside that there's something wrong with the world, and maybe even more specifically, there's something wrong with the people around me, or the city in which I live, or my church. There's something wrong. Things are not working the way that they're supposed to. And let's just look at that and taste of it on a broad level. Anyone could look at the globe and find things that are wrong, that hurt our own heart, that weigh us down. The poverty that is evident around us, that is evident on a global scale. A lack of clean water, whatever it is that you want to point out. Oppressive regimes. The poor and the impoverished and the widows and the orphans that are subject to oppressive regimes. ISIS and their religious rampage. You can scour the news headlines and find something that can break your heart unless we have no heart, which I think most of us do. You can look for a headline and easily find something that will break your heart. What is happening in your heart to break it? You, being made in the image of God, have at at least some sense of the righteousness of God. You're looking out on the world, and even if you're not a believer, you know that something is wrong, and it hurts. So we mourn over the evils in the world, big and small. But as Christians, we find ourselves in an interesting and peculiar predicament. Because we live in the tension of things being wrong with the hope that things are going to be right again. And that forces us to ask the question, what do we do with this tension? We know where we belong. We know that God is going to make all things new. We know that his kingdom is going to come in consummated form and that things are all going to be made right. But it is not yet, and we live in that situation. And so bad things happen to good people. Our friends fail us. Things go sour. Life doesn't work out the way that we thought it would. And we ask ourselves, what do we do in the tension? You might find yourself considering a, a couple courses of action when things wind up like that. Perhaps you become cause-driven. You know that feeling when you open up your laptop, your computer, and you see that professionally created video about a third world country made by a young person from the States. It starts with this gripping classical music, and it's dark on screen and a text comes up giving you a glimpse into some impoverished neighborhood jerking on your heartstrings. And the music is dark and foreboding. All of a sudden someone steps in on the scene with a child or with an orphan or with uh, some area that is deeply hurting and they paint the picture of what is wrong. And you find yourself broken over that. And then comes the call. Here's what you can do to change the events of world history. 
Here's what you can, cha- you can do to change this part. The sufferings of the world and your heart wraps itself around it, as it should. But for some of us, being cause-driven is all we know to do. And while we should find the right causes and we should be involved in the sufferings of this world and we should engage as faithful Christians, for some of us, perhaps we are simply cause-driven, immersed in those good causes because we are so uncomfortable with the way that the world has wound up to be that instead of looking in on our own condition, like to feel a little better about ourselves. How many of us have witnessed or experienced that person who has come to faith overnight and it wasn't like a slow, progressive coming to faith, but it was like that guy that you grew up in high school with, right? That person. The worst of the worst, the least likely to make anything of their life. And that person overnight went just from the word, just from just breaking bad to born again in like five seconds. And the story is always the same, and it's one of the most inspirational ones that I, I witness. I, I see this happen from time to time. And for them, it's not just a change from one lifestyle to the other, but it's a change in every possible way of life. And that person becomes so zealous in their faith. It's all so brand new. They're so excited. They got set free from bondage. They've been set free to follow Christ. They have a new way of viewing things. They're reading the Bible for the first time. They're baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Everything has changed, and it's so much for them to process, and they just want to change the world. And I love that. Of course, every now and then, that person in their zeal and sometimes look at other people who are not as zealous as they are and wonder what's wrong with them. Sometimes we're cause-driven because we want to obey Christ. Sometimes we're cause-driven because we're self-righteous. We don't know what to do with the pain. And we even subconsciously wonder that if we do enough good in this life, It'll protect us from having to deal with our own shame and sin. You may not be cause-driven. You might be comparison-driven. You look at others and you say, well, spend enough time on New York Times and CNN.com to see that there are actually some wicked people in the world around me. And that's a bummer, but that sure makes me feel better about myself. I was actually feeling convicted about my pride and my envy, but in light of you know, murder and all of that other stuff that's going on, not too bad. Comparison comes from the same place that being cause-driven comes from, and it's self-righteous. Do you ever think that in our possible courses of action, where we are heartbroken over the state of the world or the state of our surroundings and environment, we are looking at courses of action and choose certain things, self-righteous things because of a hidden motive that perhaps the only way that we know to alleviate this burden 
of unrighteousness. To alleviate the feeling of brokenness is to be self-righteous and to muster up as much goodness as we possibly can. I'm not saying that's always why we do good things, and as Christians, we should do good things, but is that ever, just look at your own heart and search yourself, do you think that's ever a hidden motive? Yes, I'm doing this for the good of that person, but at the end of the day, it's helping me not deal with myself. I do that. This is precisely where Jesus flips me on my head. Because he doesn't come by and say, blessed are those who are righteous, for they will be satisfied. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for. In other words, blessed are those people who have come to a place in their lives where they recognize something that they don't have. Blessed are those who desire a righteousness that they cannot create for themselves. In other words, Jesus is confronting not just those people, but me and you. And he's saying, Yeah, there's some things that are wrong with the world, but guess what? You're wrong with the world too. And he does it by using these words that are rooted in the physical needs that we're so familiar with. Hunger pains. Using them to describe spiritual reality. Thirst. Dehydration. Starvation. In other words, Jesus is trying to get far deeper than our motives in life, our self-righteous tendencies and motives in which we just play and we just politically posture ourselves, doing good sometimes just to feel good about ourselves. He gets far below that to say it's those who are hungry, who are empty, who are broken, and who are despairing over their situation. Have you ever been hungry? I don't mean, have you ever skipped breakfast and gotten some hunger pains? Those actually aren't even real hunger pains. I mean, have you ever gone for a select period of time really, really, really hungry? Here's perhaps what some of us have done. We've gotten so carried away with our work, right? A lot of us have done this. We're in the office, we're just, on, we're, just, we're just hitting a stride, we're getting stuff done, we started at six in the morning, and all of a sudden it's five o'clock in the afternoon, we haven't eaten a meal, we just totally forgot, skipped our mind. And we realize, oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> you might be mildly hungry, but if you're preoccupied with work, you won't even notice the hunger, because there's something else more pressing than your appetite. But if you just don't have access to food and you're forced outside of your own will to go for weeks without food, it's an entirely different feeling. If you go for a long enough period of time, if you're actually starving, 
you won't be able to sit behind your computer to do some work. Nothing else in your life will be clear to you except for that one animal craving at the deepest part of who you are. Jesus is describing that, but not literally about your stomachs. He's describing it about your spiritual appetites. And he's aiming to trigger in us an awareness that is deep enough to trigger us to the sense of our own spiritual dehydration. To get us to a point to where we could say, yeah, there's a lot of things going on with the world, but as uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, the problem with the universe is me. There's a lot of other problems, but the problem with the universe is also me. And here's the thing. The Bible unequivocally declares everybody on the planet being a sinner is contributing to the problem. We're all broken and in need of a savior. Everybody fits that description, but not everybody wants out of that description. Some people will wake up morning and go to sleep in the evening never aware that they are spiritually emaciated and hungry. And they will wake up the next day continuing to do their work because they don't know any better. The beatitude is not speaking about them. It's speaking about that person that develops a hunger. It's that hunger for more that's so elemental to the kingdom of God. The problem is until we feel that in the deepest part of our being, until we get past the morning, until we get past the being poor in spirit, until we get past the humility and we move from that broken, emaciated, starving, dehydrated place of brokenness to a hunger to fill that void with something else, that the real work begins to happen. It's until we are compelled to a desperate hunger and thirst for more. Until that happens, we will never see God as necessary. Supplemental, maybe add them to our list of other things that we use to make our lives a little more enhanced, but we'll never see him as necessary and much less satisfying. If we don't recognize the deepest need in our heart, we'll never even get to the place of saying, yeah, I need God, much less, oh, he's, all that, he's what satisfies my deepest longings. Unless we feel the need and the hunger and the thirst for him, we might not even notice he's in the building. There's a social experiment done several years ago that you might have heard of, it was on YouTube by a guy named Gene Weingarten called Pearls Before Breakfast. I believe he was a journalist for the Washington Post. Set up an experiment and wrote a description of it, which he writes of this nondescript, youngish white man in jeans, long sleeve t-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap on. Went to the metro at the L'Enfant Plaza station in D.C. and stood against a wall besides this little trash basket. Opened up a small case. He removed a violin from the case and he began playing. But first, he opened the uh, violin case, put it at his feet, and threw a couple bucks and some spare change in the case, you know, as seed money for people passing by. And then he began to play his violin. 
It was about 7.51 in the morning on a Friday, January 12th, in the middle of morning rush hour. In the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed him by. Almost all of them were on their way to work, which meant because of you know, where they were, that almost all of them had a government job. And we're talking about the nucleus of federal Washington, so they were mostly mid-level bureaucrats uh, with weird, uh, oddly fungible titles like political analyst and project manager and budget officer and specialist, so on and so forth. In the 45 minutes that the musician played, only six people stopped to listen. About 20 gave him money but continued to walk at their normal pace, just kind of walking by and just, just passing. He collected about $32. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed. No one applauded. There was no recognition. Then he left. No one knew this at the time, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the most talented musicians on the planet. He had just played one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written on a Stradivarius violin worth three and a half million dollars. Two days before playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston where seats averaged a hundred bucks a pop. Two weeks after this incident in the subway at the Music Center in Strathmore, North Bethesda, he would play to a standing room only audience so respectful of his artistry that they stifled their coughs until the silence between movements. True beauty and goodness in a subway. I have a question for you. Is it possible to be in the presence of true beauty and goodness and not even know it? Or dare I say, not even care? Ask Josh Bell. Better yet, ask Judas Iscariot. Has it ever occurred to you and I that Judas Iscariot was a man who walked in the presence of Jesus Christ for three years? Judas got what I would die for. Stay in a room with the Messiah in flesh and blood. To eat fish with him by the river to talk to Jesus, to ask him stupid, silly questions, to go fishing with him, to build tables with him, to watch his miracles, to learn from him, to sit at his feet, to weep with him, to laugh with him, to learn from him. Judas got all of that. Is it possible to sit in the presence of beauty and glory for three years and miss it entirely? This is where some of you are right now. Yeah, you're in church. And yes, God moves among us graciously. But you're just here as a matter of routine, maybe to feel better about yourself, self-righteousness. 
Maybe it's because all, that's all you've ever known. Maybe because you've been raised Christian and that's what your mom and dad told you to do. Maybe it's because you're after that attractive person and they're going to church, so you're going to church. The list of reasons why we go to church is endless. They're not all correct. And God could be moving right before you and you might be missing it. Too dazed by the condition of your own life to be aware of the beauty of God's righteousness being offered to you, set almost in your lap in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who want what I have for they'll be satisfied with what I have. So you see, it's not sufficient enough to know that we're empty and broken, nor is it sufficient enough to mourn over our emptiness. The world does that. There must also be in us a desire for the righteousness of a holy God to come upon us. There must be in us an insatiable desire to not be left the way that we started. There must be in us a holy appetite for the things of God and for the kingdom of God to come upon the people of God. And without that, you will attempt to satisfy that hole in your soul for the rest of your life with the silliest means ever imaginable. Sex and money and relationships and work and status and social media and cleverness and ingenuity and friends. And just think about the ridiculousness of that. I have this soul and it is made for eternity and it is more complex than even science can explain, but I think I've got it down. I think I can make it happy by a romantic relationship. That's it. Ecclesiastes says God created you with eternity on your heart. Eternity. But we think we can satisfy eternity with our stupid, silly, petty games. It's no wonder C.S. Lewis in his famous quote would describe us at times like little children satisfied with making mud pies in the slum not knowing that there is a feast right inside the kitchen. Before Lewis, before any of our modern minds would describe some of these things, prophet Isaiah was screaming it from the top of his lungs to you. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? And then the prophet answers his own rhetorical question with the one thing, the one person that can satisfy the broken human soul. In verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Brothers and sisters, when we see in ourselves, in yourself, a lack of righteousness and looking upward to the righteousness of God begin to hunger for what you see, you know that the kingdom of God has already come upon you. And God's promise to you is startling. If you just notice a hunger for me, I promise you, you will eventually be satisfied. In other words, it's actually the hunger for God 
that he considers to be part of the blessing. It's not the thing that we're supposed to run away from. It's the hunger that if we notice that we have it is a gift from God itself. The best thing to happen to you, brothers and sisters, is to notice in yourself a holy change in your desires. To be able to wake up one morning and say, even if your life isn't all together yet, to say, wow, I used to just be a raging maniac, like yesterday. And you know what? I'm still a raging maniac, but it's, I'm starting to not like that part of me. That's good. God's like, yeah, <laughs> okay. Guys, the hunger itself is the gift. The hunger itself is the gift. Isn't this what the psalmists couldn't shut up about? can stop singing about? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where can I go and meet with my God? Psalm 63, verse one through five. Oh God, you are my God, and I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I have seen you in the sanctuary to behold your power and your glory. And I have discovered upon taste testing you that your loving kindness is better than life itself. My soul, verse 5, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fat. So we know that it's possible to see what's around you and to think you're okay. It's even possible to be in the presence of true beauty and be uh, goodness and righteousness and think you don't need it. But the sheer point of this beatitude is that the kingdom of God will be filled with people who have been given an appetite for something more. I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ not to leave this building without an appetite. And if you don't have one, I would get on the ground and pound at the door of heaven until he gives it to you. What else are you going to accumulate in this life that will quench your thirst? If you don't have an appetite for the holy, I would ask God like an incessant little child until he spills it over into your lap for eternity. God's promise to those who hunger is that you will be blessed. And the correlation there is you will be blessed by being satisfied. Satisfied with what? Satisfied because of God's righteousness. In other words, we who are lacking in righteousness must hunger and seek and thirst for righteousness and we will be satisfied by that one thing that we don't have. In other words, God's righteousness will come to bear on our lives. The thing that we don't have, the thing that's missing, the thing that's wrong with the planet, the things that's wrong with our family, the thing that's wrong in our churches, the thing that's wrong in our city, the thing that's wrong in our own heart, God will bring from his heaven to bear upon our hearts and our minds and our flesh. You say, well, how in the world does that happen? Well, number one, it happens in the legal sense, right? This is what Paul was so obsessed about, where God declares us to be right even though we're not practically speaking right. 
Even though we do silly things and we make silly mistakes and we betray our best friends and we do awful things and we make horrid mistakes and we say, uh, 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 bitter, uh, we say things to people we shouldn't say and we're bitter in our hearts and we are not merciful and we're not loving and we're not gracious towards each other. There is a gospel truth that says God is able to declare sinners righteous. We see this in Paul, Romans 3, 21. Now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed to you. Attested by the law and the prophets, that is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they are justified by his grace as a gift. That word justified meaning to be declared righteous in a forensic sense, in, a, in the court of law, with God as our judge, declared righteousness through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul just can't stop talking about it. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So moving was this for people like Martin Luther that he termed it with two words. He called it the great exchange because in a real sense, the righteousness of Jesus Christ who deserved all of that which he accumulated was traded with our sin so that when we stand before God, we stand before God with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus has bore the weight of our sin. Paul said to the Corinthian church, it's for our sake that the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we would be the righteousness of God. Righteousness comes to bear on the hungry. But it doesn't stop with a declaration. See, what Martin Luther called the great exchange then turns into the great change. Because God doesn't leave you the way that he found you. He changes you from the inside out. First, he declares you to be righteous by faith, but then he makes you righteous. You were declared righteous, now you are made righteous. You were viewed by the Father through Christ, now you are conformed to the image of Christ. And when we come to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is not here saying, blessed are those who want to be declared righteous, even though that happens. What he is saying right here is blessed are those who want to be made right. Blessed who are those who are starving for something more, who are not satisfied with their lives left to themselves, who want the kingdom of God to be impressed upon every area and sphere of their life, who want to change and who want to reflect God's glory. Jerry Bridges, in his classic, The Pursuit of Holiness, put it this way. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at our salvation, he comes to make us holy in practice. If there is not, then, at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to God, we need to seriously question whether our faith in Christ is genuine. Doesn't mean we can't make mistakes or there's no grace, it means is the desire there. He goes on to say true salvation brings with it a desire to be made holy. When God saves us through Jesus, he not only saves us from the penalty of sin, but also its dominion. Being declared righteous in the sight of God is just the beginning of a radically satisfied journey with your Messiah. 
After that, there is a desire to pursue righteousness. See, the gospel is not, here's a list of impossible commands, go do them. The gospel is, here are a list of new desires, go enjoy them. This has been the gospel promise all along. It was Ezekiel who said in verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 26, speaking, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. There's union with Christ. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness. I'll give you new desires. Some of you are already there. And to you, I want to say, don't overthink it. Just take the plunge. If you even in the remotest way possible are tasting of the goodness of God, stop asking questions and jump into the pool. The other half of you aren't there yet. Maybe you're caught between grace and obedience. Maybe for you, Christianity is just a get out of jail free card. This is the religion I need to give me license to live the life that I want apart from God, but with the benefits of forgiveness. In reality, let's just be real. We love phrases like the love of God, as we should. We love to speak of the grace of God. We love to speak of redemption and forgiveness and renewal. But we have not tasted of those things if we do not also love who God is. We've never experienced actual grace if we have not also loved actual righteousness. If it is not actual righteousness that we desire, it's not actual grace that we desire either. All we desire is to live outside of God's rule and reign with a divine license to do so, and God will not bless that. You know why? Because God loves you too much. In Exodus, he says, I am God, I am a jealous God, and I will keep you for myself, and I will not share my glory with another. To put it in the words of A.W. Tozer, God wants the whole person and he will not rest until he gets us in entirety. You know you're a child of God because you love what God loves. You have an aversion to what God doesn't love. And the happiest thought to cross your mind is to be more like your God. If that's not your happiest thought, there's still hope for you. But it has to involve a deep inner work of the Holy Spirit inside you to show you a new hunger. And when that hunger and that thirst begin to cultivate themselves inside you, the command of Scripture is very simple. Can't see it in the English words, but those words hunger and thirst in the original language denote a continuous action. In other words, 
he might as well be saying, blessed are those who hunger and continue to hunger. Blessed are those who are thirsty and keep thirsting. And this is what we will do for the rest of our lives until we see him face to face and are transformed into his image for all of eternity. What you want to do with that, I leave between you and the Lord. I'm going to call the worship team up right now, and I just want to end with a prayer. It's a written prayer. I know we don't do a lot of those here at Reality, but every now and then one comes along that's everything I wanted to say. Such is the case with this one. This is by A.W. Tozer. It's on the screen. We can... You can pray this with me if you want, or you can just listen. But let this be our driving prayer and conviction as we worship. Not settling for anything less, but pursuing. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longings. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name.